I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, it's where we were last week. Get my spectacles on so I can see my own notes in, my, in the Scripture. Uh, so I am going to jump right in. I know I probably say that from time to time, or jump right in, but we have to jump right in because I have an extended uh, sharing of my heart at the end of, of the sermon time related to the sermon, but also related to our uh, corporate life together. And so uh, I, I need to jump right in and, and get going here. So what I want to uh, start off with today is with this reminder. This is our mission, folks. This is what we have published as, as, the, as the mission of Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, and that is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. And we primarily gained this mission, the, the wording of this mission, out of the, first, uh, the Matthew 28 passage, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, notice this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We emphasized last week that, that we are called as genuine Christians to be obedient. Why? Well, because all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. And so we are obedient to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are we obedient to do? We are, the command here in, in verse 19 is, go make disciples. It's the idea of, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Part of this idea of making disciples is to walk them through a maturing process, which includes two things at least, but it's the idea of baptizing them, that's that first, uh, that early, not, it's not necessarily the first step of obedience. I actually don't like that terminology because there's many steps of obedience that come prior to one's baptism. Uh, it can be. And so what I want to encourage you here, though, this ought to be true of your maturing in your faith is coming to publicly identify yourself with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what, that's what baptism points to. So as we make disciples, we're baptizing them, but we're also teaching them. And this is where I've primarily uh, uh, taken that word for maturing, right? We are, we are to make and mature disciples. Making disciples is bringing them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and seeing them come to faith. That's a one-time event in a person's life with continuous uh, blessings that come as a result of that. Because once you come to faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you become a child of God. You have, uh, you have exited darkness. You've entered light. You have become a child of God. And so as this part of our life is a continuous thing. This is why we gather together on Sunday and on Wednesday nights and in Sunday school and in small groups and, and two or wherever two or three are gathered together. It's the idea that we are teaching. We are engaging with the Word of God so that we will observe all things that Jesus has commanded us. That's what Jesus is sharing with his disciples in Matthew 28. He's saying, listen, go and do this wonderful thing because I have all things that I've commanded you and you need to tell others and then you need to train others to tell others and, and those need to train so they can tell others so that we can come to faith and we are called to also tell others all the things that Jesus has commanded us to do. He says, listen, I, I, I am with you always even to the end of the age. That's the beautiful news that God, that Jesus has uh, promised us his presence no matter what life has to deal with it. I want to draw your attention to this word observe, teaching them to observe. In some English translations, it actually translated as obey. We are called to obey all things that Jesus has commanded us. And so last week we considered this uh, as a, one of our, our, uh, our big, kind of our big focus. It wasn't the big idea. It was the idea that as a Christian, I am called to a life of obedience. And it was the fourth in a line of, of ideas that as a genuine Christian, someone who truly understands the gospel of Jesus Christ, that truly has apply, has, understands that they bring nothing of worth to God. God, here's my money. Love me. God, here's, here's all my time. Love me. God, give me every, you know, I'll give you everything if you will just love me. And it says, no. God says, I loved you first. Respond to my love by coming to faith in my son, Jesus Christ. I loved you so much, I sent my son to die in your place. He died for your sins and for my sins, for all sins of all time. Jesus hung on that cross and he died. And then he rose again three days later 
as it is ascended in heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and it's coming again. I, I share that with you because, listen, folks, this is what should be our lifeblood as a Christian. A genuine disciple that understands the truth that they need to repent of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ will do these things. This is supposed to be true of all of us that call ourselves Christians. We're called to live lives of holiness, called to live lives of confessing our sin, called to live lives where we repent our sin on a regular basis and and live lives of obedience to what God is calling us to do. As we looked at 1 John 2, 3 through 6 last week, we we considered this big idea. A genuine disciple is totally committed to obeying Jesus. Um, I I, immediately flashed, how many of you consider yourselves child of the 80s? Okay, I'm a child of the 80s, right? Any music that is now theme song and commercials, I'm, I'm up. I'm, you know, I remember, right? But do you remember the whole, totally, right? That whole, you know, that whole thing with like, totally cool, gag me with a spoon, that, that kind of terminology, that still resonates with me. Don't use that one as I used lit, right? Uh, but it's the idea, a genuine disciple is totally committed. We could have just said, a genuine disciple is committed to obeying Jesus, and we would be right. But I think totally adds something to this. There's not one area of our lives as Christians that is to be kept from obedience to God. We are totally committed to obeying Jesus in all areas of our life, in our parenting, in our, in our child rearing, in our, in our ethics at work, in our private life, in our public life, in our corporate worship, in our private worship, in our interactions with one another. We need to be totally committed to obeying Jesus. That was last week. We considered the idea, how do I know that I am a genuine Christian? And I rephrased it to say, to be in line with the text, how do I know that I know Jesus? We learned first that when I obey him, that's how you know. How do you know you're, you have the ability to obey and your life is characterized by obedience? A continual obedience, not a perfect obedience, as the scripture reading showed. There was a part there that said, you know, but we have an advocate with the Father, but, you know, but if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We're not, we're not talking about sinless perfection, but listen, you know that you know Jesus when you obey him. That's really what verse 3 says. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, the next verse kind of explains that I cannot claim a relationship with Jesus when I live in continual uh, disobedience to his commands. There are people who who want to believe that they are uh, children of God, that they are believers in Jesus, but, but you see no fruit of that faith in their life. They have prayed a prayer. They have, they have said something that, that had, there were significant words, but there was no faith behind it. And, and so we have to be careful of identifying everyone who says they're a Christian as being a Christian. Not that we need to question everyone, but it's by your fruits that you're going to know them. If, if they're unethical, if they're, if they're lying, cheating, stealing, fornicating, doing all this, all this stuff that we know does not characterize a child of God, then, then we don't distance ourselves from that person, we bring the gospel to that person and say, do you, do you really know Jesus? Because if you, if you know Jesus, you obey Jesus. I cannot claim a relationship with God through Jesus Christ when I live in continual disobedience. It's a characteristic of my life. It's not, it's not an erring Christian. It's a non-Christian, someone who is, this is a habit of life. He says in verse 5, the positive side of this, my continual obedience, get, get this, my continual obedience not continuous and not perfect. My continual obedience to the commands of Jesus mature me in what? In the love of God. That's what verse 5 is telling us, is that there's this maturing thing that goes on and, and this love of God. Notice it doesn't say the love for God. It says the love of God, and it's seen in my love for God, and it's seen in my love for others. But the only reason we have a love for God, and the only reason we can love others, is because God loved us first. We know the love of God. It's a reality in our life, and we, we've talked about this off and on over the last few weeks. So how do I know Jesus? Well, first of all, we, 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 know, we, we know Jesus when we obey, obey him in a continuous fashion, a continual uh, fashion. 
But we also know that we're, uh, we know him when we abide in him. This idea of being, being present in Christ all the time, right? And this is what uh, 5b and, uh, and verse 6 say uh, from last week's sermon. By this we know that we are in him. Okay, this is, uh, I thought I had it highlighted. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as Jesus walked. It's, it's the same command in 5b. You know, how do I know that I know him, right? Verse 3. It says, by this we know that we know him, when we abide. And so my life of committed obedience will look like the life of Jesus. This is what we talked about last week. We should look more and more like Jesus Christ as we mature in our faith. So if you put those two together, to obey Jesus is to abide in Jesus. And we could flip that around. To abide in Jesus is to obey Jesus. You can't have one without the other. And so do you, do you hope to abide in Christ? Then obey Him. Are you in the habit of obeying Him? Then you are abiding in Him. Not through some legalistic meeting of, of standards, but through a genuine response of, of faith to what God has done for you in the work of Jesus Christ. So we get, as we get into our text today, to abide in Jesus is to love like Jesus. Now we, we just finished a series on love like Jesus, Right? But to abide in Jesus, this is now where we're picking up in John's thought as we get into verse 7. He's picking up, he's flowing with his argument. And he's saying, listen, if you're going to abide in Jesus, you need to love like Jesus. But he gets very specific. And so this is the big idea for the day. To abide in Jesus means I must love other Christians. Okay, so let's, let's think about it. To abide in Jesus is to love like Jesus. Got it. Are you doing that? Because it's very specific. Are you doing it here? Are you doing it now? Will you do it tomorrow? Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because that is what John is challenging his readers with, and that's what he's challenging us with. So John teaches us in 1 John 2, 7 through 11. I broke it down into four. Uh, it's just the, these four of the... the uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 5. I always get my math wrong, right? 11 minus 7 is 4, but it's five verses. Does that ever mess with you? Okay. All right. The command to love is old. That's the first part of what he's going to teach us. The second is the command of love is also new in Christ. Third, we're going to look at to obey the command is to walk in the light. Remember, God is light, and we are called to walk in that light. But we're also going to see at the end here to disobey the command is to walk in darkness. And that's going to be the emphasis of the end of the text, right? So let's just take these in order. The command to love is old. Well, that sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? That's old. That's old news. No, it's, it's different. It says in, in, in 7, Behold, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment. So he's emphasizing this old commandment. And we've already read the text. Uh, you can look at it in your, in your notes and, and on the screen, but I'm going to keep moving. Uh, and he says, it's an old commandment because it was taught all the way back in Leviticus. Consider Leviticus 19.18. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But look at these words. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't a New Testament concept. John is telling the believers in, in the churches around the area of Ephesus, listen, this is an old command. This is nothing new. This goes all the way back to the days of Moses. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord, he says. You better obey. So it's old because it's, it's in the Old Testament, but it's old because it was taught to them when they came to Christ. This is, this is another aspect of why John's telling them it's an old command. He says, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, notice, which you have had from the beginning... The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. John's telling these readers, listen, they weren't at the beginning of creation. We're not talking about the beginning of creation. We're talking about the beginning of their faith. Think back to when you were at the beginning of your faith. When did that take place? There's a time where your faith became reality. You came to understand the truth of the gospel. He's saying, listen, remember back then because, listen, this command to love 
is an old command because you've known it since the day you came to faith. He says it twice, from the beginning, from the beginning. You heard this. Now, here's a quote that really, it's based upon actually 1 John 3.23 in a commentary, and we'll get there shortly uh, in chapter 3. But notice this, it says, within the author's community, talking about John, it appears that the love command was handed on alongside the gospel message itself. Please ponder this quote for just a moment. Within the author's community, and ask yourself this is, if this is true of your life and our community, it appears that the love command, I shall love the Lord thy God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I shall love my neighbor as myself. Is that something that we understood when we came to faith in Jesus Christ? In, in John's community, apparently, because it says, it appears the love command was handed on alongside the gospel message itself. Notice what 3.23 says of 1 John. And this is his commandment. It is a command. That we should believe, what? We should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we emphasize. It's called the gospel. Come to faith in Jesus. But notice, He goes on. And love one another as He gave us commandment. Notice, command, believe. Believe, command. John is, is making it very clear for his audience. You know this is true. It's an old commandment. That quote that we looked at, just a quotation that we looked at just a few minutes ago, it made me wonder, what do we emphasize when we share the gospel? Some people emphasize forgiveness of sins. Some people will emphasize uh, praying a a sinner's prayer. Some people will emphasize uh, forgiveness of of sins or or, or uh, of going to heaven and not going to hell. There's any number of things that we emphasize, but I'm asking you to consider when you share the gospel, and I'm trusting you're sharing the gospel, and if you're not sharing the gospel, you need to share in the gospel. Let me encourage you, share the gospel. It changed your life. It can change the life of anyone who comes in contact with it, right? But what are we emphasizing? Are we emphasizing come to faith in Jesus Christ and make sure that you love one another? Honest, the response could easily be, oh, I'm glad I'm going to heaven and I'm not going to hell. Woohoo! Another article I read, I'm going to read an article at the end of this, this, our time together, but it was a different article I was reading and, and, and it emphasized how, listen, we can sit there and be glad that we're not going to hell and that we are going to heaven, but he goes, oftentimes it's more like we're worshiping the God of ease, E-A-S-E, the God of ease, the God of comfort. Is it really good news? Is, is, I mean, is, is the good news of the gospel limited to to the fact that we're not going to hell and that we're getting to go to heaven? Or is the truth of the gospel the fact that you get to come into a relationship with a holy God? Is the truth of the gospel ever struck you in such a way where you know that you stand righteous before a holy God because of what Jesus has done? Is the gospel so watered down in the lives of evangelical Christians and wherever they are throughout the world to where they can say, yeah, I'm good with God, but I'm going to go living the way I'm going to live. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm good with God. I, I, I prayed that prayer, but you know what? I'm going to live like I want to live. That is not the life of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you know someone that's caught up in that, or if you're caught up that yourself, either repent or help them repent. Help them see the truth that we are to believe in the name of the Son, of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. The command to love is not only old, but it's also new. And this is, as some people are saying, listen, uh, he's contradicting himself. No, he's not. He's using creative communication techniques and he's bringing the old, it's, it's old, but it's new and he's bringing them in close proximity so we get it in our face. And he says, the command is, it, to love is new because it's in Christ. It's new because uh, we see here, again, a new commandment I write to you which thing is true in him and in you. So we see that taking place. It's a new commandment. But it's new because Jesus said it was new. John, remember, John walked with Jesus. And the other, disciple, the other apostles walked with Jesus. And he, he's basing this whole get out of darkness and come to the light based upon the testimony of all the disciples and, and apostles that knew Jesus. But he goes, listen, it's, an, it's new, this, the command of love, because Jesus said it was new. In John 13, 34, we have... Looked at this text over and over again. We'll finish with this text. A new commandment I give to you. This is a command. 
that you love one another, excuse me, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I don't know if you're getting tired of the repetitive nature of God's command, but apparently there's a problem in the church. We're not characterized by loving each other. In this church or any church, we need to remind, be reminded that we have this, this necessity laid upon us because of our relationship with Christ that we must love each other. It's a commandment. So it's also new because Jesus modeled this love for us. That's what he says in, in, in John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus has modeled it. He says in 1 John 2, 8, uh, he says this, this new commandment to love, he goes, it is also new, it, it, it's modeled in Christ. He says, which thing is true in him? This is getting back to our text. I know it's a little, I might have jumped there a little bit. It did for me just a minute in this, uh, in this sermon. But he goes, a new commandment, I write to you, which thing is true of him? Talking about Jesus. Jesus modeled this command. He came into this world and he modeled obedience and he modeled love. But what ought to get our attention is that it's new, not just because Jesus modeled it, but it's new because we are able to model the love that Jesus has for this world. You are able to model the love of Jesus. I don't know about you, but if I hear that, I'm thinking, how is that possible? He says here, which thing is true in him and in you, it's true of both of us, both Christ and us. But he's like, how is this possible? It's possible as he goes on. He explains, because, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So I want to draw your attention to these two words, right? The darkness is passing. The light is already shining. Last week, we, we emphasized the present nature of some of the verbs, right? To be in the present tense means it's, a, a, it's happening in the now. That's the way I phrase it. It's, it's happening right now. In the, in the hearing of my voice, whether it's now or, or 15 years from now when someone watches this video, it's the idea of because the darkness, it is passing now. Darkness is passing away right now. But Light is already shining right now. Well, how can you have the... It, it, it works because Jesus is the light. We're going to look at that in a minute. But he said the, the light is here because Jesus is here. And when Jesus comes on the scene in anybody's life, darkness starts to pass away. It kind of, it's, it's kind of the already... It's not kind of. It is. This is that reality that we must live in, the tension we must live in. That we are already children of God, but we are not in His presence fully yet. We are citizens of the kingdom, but the kingdom isn't fully realized. This is, this is the idea. There is coming a day when all darkness will be vanquished and gone, and we will only be in the light. But he says right now, in the now, where we stand and where we sit right now, we, darkness is passing. How is it passing? Well, someone, someone, just someone, maybe one person might be challenged with this idea. What do you mean I can have my sins forgiven? You mean, you mean all that horrible stuff that I've done in my life? Or, or maybe it's like, you mean all the junk of my life that I am so wish I could get out of my life? I just can't seem to get it gone. I can't, I can't. You talk about repent. I don't know how. Come to faith in Jesus because he is the light. And when he comes into your life, he shines his light on your sins. And what he does is not say, you wicked person. He says, no, repent. And I and my Father will come into you. That's the gospel. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining in the now. This is possible because Jesus is the light and he communicated it that way. He said in John 9, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He says in 8 verse 12, uh, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. He says in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. To obey the command is to walk in the light. Jesus is the light. It's an old command, but it's a new command. And it's a command that we must walk in the light. To obey the command is to walk in the light. We are able to do this because of Christ's work in us. He says, he who loves his brother 
abides in the light. Now, I'm going to just call you out here. Did anyone notice that we skipped verse 9? All right. I went to 10. 7 and 8. 7, old command. 8, new command. 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light. We'll get to verse 9. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Walking in the light keeps us from stumbling. Going back to that verse. He who loves his brother. Folks, John is challenging his people. And, and by the way, sisters, you're not excluded, all right? This is brothers and sisters. This is talking about those of the family of faith. He who loves his brother abides in the light. There is some aspect of our corporate gathering where if I don't love you and if you don't love me and if you don't love one another, we're walking in darkness. But, but that's, that's 9 and 11. 10 says that we are able to walk in the light and if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we, are, we are abiding. Remember, we, how do we know that we know Jesus? We're to obey him. We're supposed to abide in him. He says, he who loves his brother abides in light. He abides in Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. Walking in the light keeps us from stumbling. This idea of there's no cause for stumbling is the idea of, I don't know about you, how many of you have gotten up in the middle of the night and, and bumped into something? Pretty simple illustration, but let me just share a recent one. We moved Christine's cedar chest from under the window a few months back to the end of the bed. Guess what? I got up in the middle of the night. Whack! All right? Bruised shins. All right? I hate that feeling. And so we know what it means. In darkness, you, you walk, you stumble, you hit things. We'll get there in a minute. But in the light, there's none of that's happening. And that's, that's what John is doing in 10 and 11. He, he's kind of, really, 9, 10, and 11, but uh, 10 and 11, he does it foremost. 10... Listen, it's the idea of walk in the light and you won't stumble. It's the idea of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ because of the love of God in you. There's no cause for stumbling in you. You're walking in the light. You're doing what you're called to do. You're not going to stumble if you do that. But in 9 and... uh, It says 9 and 10, but it's only 9. It says, 9 says, Jesus answered... Are there not 12? I'm sorry. This is, I, I totally spaced. These, uh, this is chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. It's what I just described. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is not in him. So this brings us to our final point. To disobey the command is to walk in darkness. This idea of darkness is the idea of walking in sin. It's talking about being in the, nature, uh, the, the community of sin and the world around us where you look more like the world. See, there's, there's unbelievers who are stuck in their darkness, and then there's erring believers who walk in dark paths and need to repent. All right? So to disobey the command is to walk in darkness. He says in verse 9, He who says he is the, in the light... Right? I'm a Christian. I'm in the light. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother, right? This is the third he who says statement. But he says, and, and, and hates his brother or sister. It says he's in darkness until this very moment. There is no way you can hate. I mean, that idea of hate is, is uh, pretty strong words, right? Well, P- pastor, I don't hate anybody. Well, I dislike a few people. Right? And we water it down and we make it not sound as bad as it sounds. Let's, let's use the word hate. Jesus said in, in, in uh, uh, Matthew 5, right? It's like, uh, thou shalt not kill. Well, I haven't killed anybody. Uh, wait a minute. What if you're angry with your brother? It's the same as murder. You're on the same spectrum. We're going to talk about spectrums in a minute. But we're on the same spectrum. Murder and anger. Well, I think hate kind of probably falls somewhere in that spectrum. And it says, he who says he abides in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. We ought not to be characterized by that. He goes on in verse 11. It says, but he who hates his brother, there's the word again, is in darkness. So notice the escalation. He is in darkness. He walks in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When you're in a dark room, you know, you're being very careful. 
But some people just, they just walk ahead and walk right into that cedar chest. Right? Now I know where I'm going. Boom! It's right there. He who hates his brother is in darkness and then walks in that darkness. Shouldn't be that way. And does not know where he's going. Walking in darkness is a lonely, scary thing to be, but people aren't scared of it. They don't understand that they, they, they don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. They don't understand that they are in a place where they should not be. And that's true of lost people. They're lost. They have not, they, notice, look, they, they don't know where they're going. They're lost. I mean, there's so this idea of lost people are, are lost because the blindness, the darkness has blinded them. They, they think they know the ways of God, but they don't. But listen, erring believers fall into that mistake too sometimes. I'm not about talking about losing your salvation. I'm just talking about your fellowship. I cannot claim fellowship with Jesus when I refuse to love his disciples. If I'm characterized by not loving a fellow Christian, I'm walking in darkness. To abide in Jesus means I must love other Christians. With that being said, I want to read an article to you that is fresh. Not just fresh off the printer. It was published yesterday. And and this is where I'm going to say, as, as we try to abide in Jesus means I must love other Christians. I'm going to I'm going to actually open the curtain for a minute, let you into my heart and mind, and let you into some of the things going on in our corporate gathering. And it's not pretty. Just not. Why? Because no church is pretty when they're walking in darkness, right? So I'm going I'm to read this article because I'm going to read most of the article. It'll be in the next 10 minutes probably. I'll be reading through it. I'll make comments as I go through. But I'm asking you, hang in there with me. I'm not saying you're wicked, evil people, and I'm not saying I'm a wicked, evil person. But I have some things that I have wanted to say for months. And just a few weeks ago, I actually cracked the door in the first service and then didn't in the second service. I, I, that, if you remember, I was struggling. I was like, I don't know. And I did not, for sake of time, I didn't cover it. I'm covering it today. And as I read this, you'll know why, all right? The title of the article is it's published, it's written by a guy by the name of John Bloom. It's, uh, it's out of the Desiring God ministry, uh, John Piper's ministry. I, I ascribe to the emails and I get their articles all the time. Um, this one got my attention and, and then it drew me right in. I hope it draws you in. The title is, Can Anything Mend Our Conflict? How Cynicism Dies in a Divided Church. I don't think it's the greatest title. I think what he's saying, can anything mend our conflict? How cynicism dies and we can have a united church. In other words, we need cynicism to die so that we can be united. Are we a divided church? In many ways, yes. That's why I started off the the sermon with the idea of we are unified in our mission, which is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That's what we're called to do. We are called to rally around that and have unity in that. That is our driving force. And I seek to, I, wanna, I want us to stay in that lane. But there are exit ramps that take us off of the mission and, and we get tied up and we get into to, to all kinds of different things. Notice what this guy says in his article. He says, right now, the example of a small band of 20-something Christian women is helping me resist the many temptations I feel towards cynicism, and let me explain why. So we'll get back to the ladies in a few minutes. He says, and and this is where my heart is in my mind, he has put to words. I have been disheartened by the amount of politically, ideologically, culturally driven acrimony, leadership failures, church divisions, ethnic tensions, and relational breakdowns among American evangelicals over the past few years. He's saying, I'm disheartened by all this stuff. So how does that portray to us, right? Well, I think on any given day, on any given decade, there could be things that we could disagree over. And what I want you to understand is we talk about a spectrum, whether it's, whether it's the, the anger that's on the same spectrum of murder, I will say this. We have spectrums of, per, of perspective, spectrums of belief when it comes to things outside of our mission and focus. 
We have different perspectives on, on whether or not we should wear masks. We have different perspectives on whether or not we should get vaccines. We have different perspectives on the words, Black Lives Matter. We have, we have these different perspectives. And it's dividing the church. And it's dividing our church. He says, I'm disheartened by this. And so am I. And you probably are too. He says, I wish I could say it's all exaggerated by media algorithms and irresponsible Christian clickbaiting. There's a new word, never heard of clickbaiting, but I've seen it too much up close. I see evidence of Christian disunity almost everywhere I turn. The three beloved churches where I spent most of my life have in the past few years all experienced significant to devastating eternal, uh, internal conflict. Christians who are remarkably aligned theologically and who have worshiped together for years no longer bear with each other. Relationships that took years to bond are torn. And the results uh, and the resulting wounds leave a, scar, leave a scar tissue of distrust that doesn't seem to, re, to relationally adhere as it did before. What is going on, he asks. A lot. Complex historical, social, cultural, political, leadership, and spiritual warfare issues uh, factor into this epidemic of Christian disunity. We can't ignore them. They're real and seriously affect real people. So folks, can we just pause for a minute and just say, there are issues in this world that are real, genuine. And people have different perspectives and different understandings. And, and we need to be willing to listen to other people's perspectives. And understanding our, our understanding, our perspectives can be informed. And we can know more. But we must be careful, he says. In our analysis and discussions and debates of the problem, we can, ironically, miss or evade the fundamental issue. For when it comes to cultivating priceless Christian harmony or wrecking destructive Christian dissonance, the greater causal factor, the one, of the, the one the New Testament far and away addresses more than any other, is love. He writes, try not to roll your eyes. I know when there is a, a strenuous debate among Christians over something complex... There's always a guy in the room that says something like, and I'm probably this guy, right? We just need to love each other, right? Amen. <laughs> so it's not me, it's you, okay? He goes, and it's usually not very helpful. This kind of statement comes across as naive, simplistic idealism, because we don't just need to love each other. We need to fundamentally love each other. We need to know what loving each other means and looks like when we're faced with a complex issue. When we view matters from different perspectives, when we have no simple solutions, and when the only way forward requires bearing with one another during the extended tension or disagreement. We need to love. And in this way... New Testament love is not simplistic, as in reductionistic. It's not just a matter of, 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 of we just need to love each other. It's not simple. It's fundamental, and there's a big difference. He writes the Beatles song slogan, all you need is love, right? I could sing it, right? It's in your head now, right? The Beatles song slogan, all you need is love, is naive, simplistic, idealism. It sounds right because we all intuitively know love is the supreme virtue. But the statement is conceptually hollow and incoherent. It doesn't tell anyone what love means, what it looks like when practiced, or what it costs. Consequently, this sentence hasn't transformed anything, much less conflicts over complex issues. All you need is love is a catchy tune. And it, but it only just kind of scratches the surface. It doesn't, it doesn't change our life. And our lives need changing. He says, contrast that with Jesus' great command to love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew twenty two thirty nine. 39. 
Do you see the difference? Jesus' command is fundamentally simple, but not at all simplistic. It's simple in that everyone immediately grasps the fundamental principle. Love ought to be our most core value. Shaping all our motives in relation to one another. It's not simplistic because it is a one-sentence summary of an all-encompassing orientation to all our relationships and its applications are endless. I know I may lose you in this article. But I have been dying to say something publicly in a way that would not foster the very division that is going on as we talk about Masked vaccinations and Black Lives Matter. Does anybody in this room really believe that any other Christian in this room believed that Black Lives Matter was a support for some sinning organization that is demeaning people and hurting people and causing violence and and doing... You ought to think better of your brothers and sisters in Christ. The term black lives matter means that black lives matter. It's significant that we inform our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who don't know Christ that their lives matter. It is not sufficient that we say all lives matter for this particular point in time and message. It's important that we communicate to this hurting group, listen, we understand that wrong has been done in the name of whatever. But certainly as believers, how can we say that, oh, someone said Black Lives Matter and that means that they support the organization. That's ridiculous. And it lacks theological underpinning. It lacks knowledge of what the Christian life is looking like because we ought to know that to abide in Jesus means I must love other Christians. Stop judging them wrongly when you don't understand the message that they're trying to convey. Stop judging people that they won't get a vaccination and therefore they don't love. What do you mean? People have rational, real reasons for not getting a vaccination. It is never commanded in Scripture. And I'm going to get this wrong because this isn't in my notes, and it's, but I've been dwelling on this. I'm trying to think of how to say it. We are called to esteem others better than ourselves. We are never called to esteem ourselves better than others. And yet that is what the division that happens in churches is all about. Well, I believe this and I believe this. Hoof! We're walking in darkness and can't we see it? I'm calling this church to holiness, to confession, to repentance, to obedience, and to love each other. How's that? Okay. That's called pride, and I want to stay as far away from that as I can. He goes on to write. This kind of statement comes across, I think I already read that one. He says, love your neighbor as yourself is functionally powerful because... In any specific situation, it helps us gain at least some clarity on what love ought to look like, as well as what it will cost. It doesn't remove complexities from relationships, situations, and issues, but if earnestly pursued, to abide in Jesus means I must love other Christians, but if earnestly pursued, it is effective at dousing the flame of sin that turns our conflicts into wildfires, Fires surrounding us in American evangelicalism. The power of Jesus' love command and the many examples and expositions of it in the New Testament, of which 1 John is one of them, has been lived out by countless saints over the years, over the past 2,000 years, and has transformed the world in countless ways. Which brings me to that small band of 20-something women I mentioned at the beginning. For me, they are a picture of Jesus' love command in action. I don't have time to read that portion. So I will say I'm already way over time uh, in one sense. I'm only a minute 
from where we normally end, but we still have to end. All right? This, this group of 20-something ladies, they saw a need in a, in a country, in a poor country, an area, a city, a very poor city in a country, and they went. They raised minimal support, went over there, and it says that they, they, uh, they slept in culverts. Uh, no, that's, I'm sorry. They fed them. They clothed them. They took them to the doctor's. He says, listen, uh, the author says, having won the trust of these hardened street kids, they're ministering to primarily to kids, through loving them with the tenuous, steadfast, faithful, sacrificial love of Jesus, now hundreds of hardened street kids have grown tender, loving these women back and genuinely caring for them in various ways. And of course, word on the street spreads fast. So, some of the, so, uh, so, so more and more kids are, are seeking these women out and the modest ministry center the Lord had provided them, they're, they're, they're being overgrown. They're, they're outgrowing it. So government officials, notice people watch the church. Government officials, by the way, let me just, I, it says it in here, I skipped over it. They are also sharing the gospel. This isn't just a social gospel where they're just meeting needs. No, they're bringing Christ into these people's lives. Government officials are also now seeking them out, talking about these ladies, to discover what they're, why, what they're doing that's so effective. These officials are also asking the street kids why they go to these women first when the government centers have more resources and programs, and the kids know the answer. Because they love us. The author writes, let this sink in. These women aren't recognized experts and they don't have long experience, abundant resources, or PhD design programs. Neither do they have formal theological training. And yet they are proving remarkably effective at reaching these kids and helping them transition toward a more health, a hopeful, productive future. For a king, from a kingdom standpoint, they are bearing more fruit and transform lives and making more disciples than just about anyone the author knows, even among a very neglected and historically difficult-to-reach group. Why? Ask the kids. They know because they love us, each one as a precious soul. So what do these women have to do with the epidemic of Christian disunity in America? We're almost done. Answer? They are examples of taking Christian love seriously. But isn't it apples and oranges to compare them to us? He writes, contextually, yes, but not fundamentally. My report of these women's story uh, due to brevity sounds more ideal than it really is. It's hard. At times, heartbreaking hard. Literal, blood, sweat, and tears hard. And it's messy. Kids turn away. Kids disappear. Kids lapse into addiction. Kids are raped. Kids are killed. And the women make mistakes. They misunderstood. Uh, excuse me. They are misunderstood. Sometimes maligned and sometimes in bodily danger. They regularly feel inadequate, lonely, confused, grieved, bewildered, homesick, and, like, and feel like failures. They wonder if they're doing it wrong, and they're all too aware of their own sin. No matter the context, living out Jesus' love command seriously and intentionally will be hard. And the cost in numerous ways will be high. We will feel the same way in our context as these women do in theirs. That's in theirs. That's part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Romans 12:1. But this kind of love is transformational in ways that nothing else is. In our divisive and conflicted times, we urgently need to examine whether we're seriously seeking to obey Jesus' love command in our complex context. Our rancor, bitterness, division, and relational breakdowns does not look like Romans 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 4, or 1 John 3, our next chapter. We also should examine whether we're paying any meaningful attention to our contextual equivalent of our wounded neighbor in the street. The stakes are high. A deficit of love creates relational wreckage and distorts people's perceptions of Jesus. I've got to pause right there. I'm going to read that again in just a minute. I'm leading up to an invitation, and the invitation is to abide in Jesus means I must love other Christians. And I know there are relational issues in our church, in at least the three I've listed. And there are probably others. And I'm not telling you, don't come back to this church because it's full of a bunch of sinners. I'm saying every church is full of a bunch of sinners, and we need to repent. 
And we need to understand to abide in Jesus means we've got to love each other even when it's hard and maybe even especially when it's hard. The stakes are high. A deficit of love creates relational wreckage and distorts people's perception of Jesus. We exist to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, and when we're not living in love, they're not seeing Jesus. For he said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you, love, if you have love one for another, John 13, 35. And he raised the love your neighbor bar even higher than we would have thought when he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, John 15, 12. Sometimes when the muck of, is flying and the disunifying din is blaring, it helps to focus on saints who are, excuse me, it helps to focus on saints who are simply, not simplistically, loving like Jesus in their difficult context. Sometimes when it's all just ugly and noisy, focus on those who are doing it right. They can help us gain perspective on what ours, uh, I'm sorry, they can help us gain perspective on our perspective and remind us what fundamentally is more important and they can be blessed, a blessed antidote to cynicism. That's what these remarkable young women are for me right now. And as I see them trying to love their broken neighbors as themselves, I hear Jesus say, you go and do likewise. So I went long. This has been in, stuck in my craw for a long time. And I don't know the way out of it other than this. So let's be obedient. If there are issues within the church, we challenge, you, we challenge each other with this, right? We challenge, I'm not, and I'm not saying I'm, 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 uh, this isn't true of me. I, listen, I'm, I'm just as human as you are. But as I prayed for God's will to be done in this sermon, I'm just begging you and pleading with you. Let's be that church that loves this way, that it truly identifies the personal work of Jesus Christ in our midst. And let's go out and make a mature disciples of Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together. And Father, we recognize the various spectrums of, of understandings and all the complexities of our world. But yet, Father, if we will stay focused... on our mission to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Part of that making is for people to see the love of Jesus. Part of the maturing is to learn how to love like Jesus. Father, when we are focused on that, Lord, give us patience with one another. Give us forgiving spirits towards one another. Give us repentant spirits towards one another. Father, may you be glorified in the response of your people to your word. Yes, I read this article, and those are man's words, and they... they and they coincide with my beliefs. But Father, please, unite us as a church. Unite us in Jesus. And help us to learn how to love one another when things are confusing and when things are difficult. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.